Let's take our Bibles and open them together to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, as we begin uh, this morning a five-week series uh, on the phrase that you just sang, but God meant it for good. Now what we're going to do this morning is we're going to begin in the end of the narrative before we go back and walk through uh, the rest to get back to this place, because I want to begin with that phrase and begin to build a a biblical understanding of suffering and trial. Biblical understanding of suffering and trial. And when I was praying through this and planning for this series, I did not have any idea that when we came to this day that wildfires would be raging in the western part of our nation. Or that disastrous flooding would be overwhelming much of eastern Kentucky. The death toll continues to rise. I didn't know those things would be going on, but I did know that friends of mine would be dealing with trial and difficulty, suffering, of life-altering illness that has come, Parents dealing with difficulties in parenting and children of aging parents dealing with difficulty in childrening. <laughs> Trial. It visits all of us at some point. Uh, I heard someone say one time in a sermon that uh, everyone in this room will find themselves in one place. You're either in the midst of a trial or you're coming out of one or you're being prepared for one. And I thought, well, what a terrible way to approach life. <laughs> Terribly accurate. Because we live in the context of a fallen world where trial and difficulty and suffering exists. As does the sovereignty of God. And we live in the, in the tension, if you will, of the existence of God's sovereignty and our suffering. And the fact that those are parallel truths, that they do not contradict one another, but yet they coincide with one another. That God's sovereignty doesn't mean that we won't suffer, and the fact that we suffer doesn't mean that God is not sovereign. So then what do we do with it when we encounter trial, when we encounter difficulty? Instead of letting our emotional response dictate our approach, what we need to do is come to the text of Scripture and see how Scripture engages that. And that's what I want us to do this morning and over the next, uh, the following four weeks. As we begin in the end of the narrative of Joseph's life and then in the weeks following, we'll go back and walk through the last 25% or 20% or so of the book of Genesis. So if you are one prone to do homework, there's your homework. Uh, get very familiar over the next month and a week with the last 13 chapters or so of the book of Genesis. You do have freedom to read ahead. You have permission. Actually, you have encouragement to do so. 
And so what I want us to do this morning is I want to read uh, Genesis chapter 50, and then we're going to go back and walk through and see some principles, because when we deal with narrative portions of the Scripture, uh, that can sometimes be a challenge for us, because we like it when we read things like Paul, where there's a clear command, where there's an instruction, do A plus B and C and, and do these things or don't do these things. We like to come to the text when we can see, do this, don't do that. It's very clear. But when we read narrative portions like the historical part of the Old Testament uh, and then maybe in the, book, the Gospels and the book of Acts, we're, we're pressed into, uh, we, we still do see imperatives that are given, but when we read these, these narrative portions, we are invited to see what is on grand display about the character of God. And God's character is on glorious display in the life of Joseph, even in the midst of his trial. And so in the last chapter of Genesis, we find that Joseph's father, uh, Jacob, has died, and, and there's some instructions that are uh, given to Jacob. In the first 14 or so verses, uh, the, the writer of Genesis unpacks for us this process of, of what Jacob had required Joseph to do because he wanted to be buried uh, in a home, and so there's this process. And then the latter half of the chapter takes a bit of a turn in verses 15 through the end. And so let's just walk through the text. And the first, as I said, the first half just gives us some context before we move into the rest. So Genesis chapter 50, reading from the New American Standard translation of the Bible this morning. Jacob has, has died. And then verse 1, Then Joseph fell on his father's face, and he wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And so the physicians embalmed Israel. And our 40 days were required for it, for such is the period requiring for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. And when the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight... That's a curious little phrase if you know the preceding part of the story. I guess as he's found favor in Pharaoh's sight. I mean, he saved the country. If I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh saying, My father has made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all of the household of Joseph and his brothers, and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds, in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen. And it was a very great company. And when they came to the... I mean, this is a, this is a herd of people going to bury Jacob. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, 
which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father. And now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. And thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. They're such good boys. Not really. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before, the Mam- before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along the field with the field for the burial site from Ephraim the Hittite. And after he had buried his father Joseph, after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, for all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now when you say, or when I said not really, here, here we see in verse 15, there's a dramatic shift in the conversation. Now if you know the previous part of the narrative, and if you don't, it's a wonderful, wonderful bit of, bit of history. Of how... This family ended up in Egypt. It started with a group of brothers hating one brother so much that they found the opportunity to get rid of him and they threw him in a hole. And then there's a really intriguing bit of this narrative between Reuben and the rest of his brothers and some things that Reuben did that put him in sort of outs with his father and maybe he could win back some of his father's affection by saving the youngest son and pulling him out of a hole and then they sold him into slavery. And some other things happened and now they're here. We'll cover those other things over the next four weeks. But some things where maybe those boys weren't such good boys and did some things that might have miffed their brother. And now the father, who was sort of the go-between between the brother and the brothers, has died, and these other brothers find themselves at the mercy of the one brother, Joseph. And so when brother Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? That might be a valid question. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died. We've got no record of this. <laughs> Scholars debate that whether this conversation actually happened. That maybe that, that Jacob did tell uh, the brothers to, to tell Joseph to forgive and you know, let bygones be bygones. Or maybe they just fabricated a story to save their own skin because they've already shown that they're pretty good at bending the truth. And so they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive me, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God and your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Isn't this interesting that he gave some very explicit instructions about what was to happen to him after he died and where he was to be buried. But this other part about, Oh, and forgive your brothers, doesn't seem to be recorded anywhere. But he's already forgiven them 
several chapters in the previous. But now that dad's not there to take care, they, they want to sort of reinforce that. And so they bring this idea to Joseph, and Joseph weeps when he speaks to them. And then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am, or am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And so he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, who were born on Joseph's knees. And I'm going to press pause there. And we'll come back to the end of the narrative at some point. You meant evil. But God meant this for good. In order that he might preserve many lives. This is not just an expression of God's compassion for this family, but rather it is a guarding of God's promise that he has made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you go back and look in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15, where God calls Abraham to make him a great nation. And this is further down the lineage to where that nation is in some, some precarious place because there are some things that are about to happen and this family needs to be preserved. So God acts in faithfulness to his word to keep his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so while the brothers meant it for evil, God was working in his sovereignty to fulfill his promise to his people. And so we see in this suffering, and Joseph goes through some trial. It starts with being betrayed by his brothers and ends with him in a hole and then being sold into slavery where he seems to be doing well for a moment until he's falsely accused and ends up in prison. And you think that could be the worst until he's forgotten in prison by two people who promised to do him good until finally the king is so troubled that he's, oh, wait a minute, there is a guy who can interpret dreams. Maybe you should go bring him. And then three short steps later, he's second in charge of the country. But it didn't happen nearly as quickly as I just said it. So what do we do between Joseph is stripped and thrown into a hole and here that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good? Well, I want us to look at some principles that we can glean from this narrative and that we will build on this foundation over the next four weeks as we strive together to build a biblical understanding of suffering. The first thing that we can see is that not all suffering is punitive, but that all suffering is purposeful. Not all suffering is punitive, but all suffering is purposeful. Now, punitive means, means connected to punishment. Webster's Dictionary defines it as inflicting, involving, or aiming at punishment. 
And you think, why would we bring this? Well, we typically approach suffering from this perspective. And it comes out something like this. When someone encounters a trial, they very often say, what have I done to deserve this? Most people don't want you to go, all right, well, let's make a list. (laughs) I don't know, what have you done? I mean, something, right? That's what Job's friends did in Job. They did really well in the beginning when they came to comfort him and they just sat down and hushed. But then they started talking and it's like, no, 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 what'd you really do? You can tell me, what'd you really do? When you go back and look in the text, God brought Job into the conversation. He said, have you considered my servant Job? What have I done to deserve this? We equate, either intentionally or unintentionally, suffering with punishment that I must have done something bad whether I intended to or not or or God, a good God, would not have done this to me. It's not a biblical understanding of suffering. It's it's more of a punitive approach to some sort of uh, retribution that all suffering therefore must be punitive. That's not the case. Sometimes God does allow suffering to come as a direct result of sinful choices. God does allow suffering to come as a result of sinful choices, whether ours or someone else's. It's part of the case here in Joseph's story. He's the favorite son of the favorite wife. Clearly his father's favorite. His father... Show, has no problem showing favoritism to Joseph. Buys him a special coat. He likes to walk around in it. And all of his brothers see it. This glowing reminder every time that they see it that he's the favorite. And then he has these dreams where he comes and says, Oh, by the way, brothers, I know you're already a little miffed with me, but by the way, you're going to bow down to me. I've seen it in two dreams. That did not endear him to them. Because when he goes to look for them, when his father sends them, he brought back a bad report, and it's like that's not helping his case. And so he goes to look for them again, and comes back, and the scripture says they look and see him coming. They said, Here comes that dreamer. And they concoct the plan to throw him in a hole and leave him there, leave him for dead, and take the jacket back to their father and say, Your son is dead. And they said, We might as well make a little bit of money off of this. And so they sold him instead of leaving him. Sinful actions of others brought suffering for Joseph. It doesn't appear to be punitive at all. It just seems to be the result of sinful choice, except that it works under God's sovereignty where 13 chapters later, Joseph's going to say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. There was purpose. It wasn't punitive. It was purposeful. And so while suffering may come as a result of Sinful choices, whether ours or someone else, it's going to happen again in Joseph's life when he comes uh, into Potiphar's house and he's falsely accused. Sinful action of others that brings suffering to him. Then when he's in prison, he's going to be abandoned there because of the what appear to be careless but unintentional acts of others where they just forgot him. 
None of those seem to be punitive at all, but they are purposeful. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So that. Anytime you see the word so that in Scripture, that's a purpose word. What was immediately before serves the purpose of what comes. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So that many people could be saved. God sent me here before you. That's what he says in the five chapters before. Purpose. And we want to think, it seems like God could have done that differently. Not our choice. He could have done it a thousand different ways, and they all might have been worse than this. I'm not here to speculate about what God could have done. We're here to look at what God did do. God orchestrates this. While they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Suffering isn't always punitive. And so if we approach suffering as always looking that God's getting me for something, we might just miss the purpose in what God is trying to do in our lives. Or what God is trying to do in the larger picture through our lives. And so while not all suffering is punitive, but it all is all purposeful, the second truth of this is true, that God will sustain His people through their suffering. We will see this as we examine Joseph's life over the next several weeks. But I want us to push pause in Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 50 and go back to Genesis chapter 39 just briefly. I want us to see a phrase here and to see this principle repeated through this text and through this whole narrative. In Genesis chapter 39, we find Joseph in Potiphar's house. And in verse 2, it says, And the Lord was with Joseph. At every part of this text, the Lord is with Joseph. God will sustain his people through their trial. The Bible is filled with record after record of God's activity on behalf of his people. Through narrative after narrative, we see God's hand through provision, protection, favor, wisdom, because God is the main character of his story. And this Bible exists so that we have it as God's revelation of himself to us. So that we understand who he is. We can rightly understand his nature and his character and his actions through that character. And so while we are encountering trials, God is faithful to sustain us through those trials. Because of this third truth, that suffering exists under God's sovereignty. And God's sovereignty is not threatened by our suffering. That's why a biblical understanding of suffering is important. Because we might be duped into thinking something like this. If I'm encountering a trial, and I'm encountering circumstances that are difficult, and I'm suffering, then either a couple things must be true. Either God's not good, or... He doesn't care, or he's not able to keep that from happening. None of those things are true. God is good. God does care. And God is sovereign. The scripture screams of God's sovereignty. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God Nothing else. God. 
into the book, God still. When people ask me what my favorite chapter of the Bible is, it shifts based on what I'm studying at the time. But Colossians chapter 1 is always up there at, near the top. Because in the middle of Colossians chapter 1, our brother Paul just loses himself describing Jesus. And there's a phrase there that Paul uses that I want us to see when we think about this reality of God's sovereignty in His created order. I want you to go to Colossians chapter 1, and let's look there for just a moment. You might want to keep your place marked in Genesis. Colossians chapter 1, in the, the middle of this first chapter, as Paul is beginning to describe Jesus, he, he, he gives this wonderful, beautiful description of who Christ is. And in verse 13 he writes, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, For by him all things are created. Genesis 1.1 For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things have been created by him and for him he is before all, before all things and in him all things hold together this screams God's sovereignty all things were made by him and for him and in him all things hold together. That the fact that the earth is tilted on the exact proper axis and we're not hurtling off into space is because God makes it that way. All things were made by Him, for Him, and in Him. All things hold together. So in the midst of us living in a broken and sinful world where suffering and trial exist, God is good, God does care, and God is most certainly sovereign. And our suffering exists under the sovereignty of God in His perfect character of His goodness, His care, His sovereignty, and His love. And we don't dictate who God is based on our emotional response to our circumstances, but rather on the bold, clear declaration of who God is in His Word. So if one of those things have to, has to shift and fit, our understanding of, sovereignty, or of suffering must fit under the sovereignty of God. And so if suffering exists under God's sovereignty, and His sovereignty is not threatened by our suffering, and it's a real, true reality in this world that suffering does exist and we endure it, but yet God is faithful and sufficient, then in our suffering, God's grace is sufficient. In our suffering, God's grace is sufficient. Let's stay with our brother Paul for just a few minutes. You're already in Colossians. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. Chapter 1. In our suffering, God's grace is sufficient for us. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. All comfort comes from Him. He is the God of all of our comfort. Who comforts us in all of our affliction. There is no suffering that we will endure that is outside of His ability to bring comfort. Now, comfort does not always equal rescue from circumstance. Things are going to get worse for Paul. But it does mean he is present. Comfort beyond our understanding. It doesn't mean escape from circumstance. It doesn't mean that he removes the trial. It just means he is present in it. He is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's almost as if when God leads us and walks us through trial, He enables us to come alongside and walk, through some, walk with someone else who's going through something similar. You saw a video about that at the beginning of the service about being together. When Amy saw that first, she said, you said together a lot in that video. And I said, yes, with intent. This is part of us living life together is that we can celebrate together, but we can also walk with people who are going through trial. When someone's encountering life-altering illness, knowing that there's someone else in their church family who has gone through the same thing and can empathize in a way that others cannot, is an expression of God's comfort. So God brings comfort in His presence and through His people. And for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, are ours in abundance, so also is our comfort abundant through Christ. It's not barely enough, it's abundant. Paul will continue to write in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, a little more popular passage. Paul writes about the fact that he's had a spiritual experience that could uh, give him opportunity to boast. And in verse 7 it says, And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. And concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul asked three times for relief from his trial, and God said no. My grace is sufficient for you. Purpose in trial. Paul said, I know why he gave it to me. To keep me from exalting myself. To keep me dependent. 
purpose in trial. And I asked God three times to take that away, and God said no. But not no, and I've left you alone, but no, my grace is sufficient for you. You might be here this morning in the midst of trial, and you're begging God for it to go away. And he may say no. But his grace is sufficient for you. Paul says, I'll boast in my weakness. He doesn't hide it. He puts it on display. He wrote it in a letter. I mean, we're reading it 2,000 years later. I'll boast in my weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Purpose. Because ultimately, suffering is beneficial. That sounds and feels so counterintuitive. There's a reason that ought to hit us a bit odd to the ear. Like, because right now, all it's doing is making me mad. I keep wondering why God won't make things better. You knew when we started in Genesis and talked about suffering, we'd end in James. James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing, confident assurance, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result in you, that you would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know who he's writing that to? People who are on the run for their faith. You look a few verses before that, it's James to the, to the dispersed, to the diaspora, those who are enduring actively religious persecution. And he says, consider it all joy, my brothers. Not in the persecution, but the purpose of it. Not in the trial, but the purpose of it. Knowing with confident assurance that this thing that you're enduring now, while God's grace is sufficient, while His presence is given and promised, while He is at work with confident assurance, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance will have its perfect result in you, that you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Not morally perfect but perfectly equipped for what God has for you. Because we learn less when things are easiest. But how many times have we heard or have we said, on the backside of trial, while the, the urgency of the pain is lessened and we can think more biblically instead of responding emotively, and we look back and think, here, I can see where God was at work here. I can see where God was at work here. I can see where God was at work here. And I can see how I'm more like Jesus on the backside of this than I was at the beginning. But if I can just be very honest with you, if there's a choice to sign up for ease or difficulty, I'm probably going to choose ease. Not many of us would willingly, knowingly choose trial 
except that I trust that when it comes, God is good. God is at work. And his grace is sufficient. And his power is perfected in weakness. And that when I encounter trial, I can have joy. Not because of it, but in spite of it. Because I know that God is at work. To make me less like me, which is ultimately what I want. I want to be less like me and more like Jesus. But when he's got to chip away the parts of me that don't look like me, that can be painful. But I can consider it joy because I know that he is at work. What someone else might have meant for evil, God meant for good. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we look to you in the midst of our trial, I thank you that you're not hard to find. And as we as your people celebrate the gospel today, that we can be reminded of your care, your presence, and your provision, and your promises. Because you're faithful and it's in Jesus' name that we pray.